you have a Bible available, you may turn to Psalm 90. We are beginning a new sermon series that will take us through the months of June and July. It is our habit during the summer months to read from the Psalms and preach for them. And so over these next weeks, we'll consider what it means for God to be our rock and our refuge. And we begin today on this Trinity Sunday with Psalm 90, a psalm that announces that God is our dwelling place, and He has been so from generation to generation, that there is an eternal and unchanging God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in whom we can dwell and find a safe home and a refuge. In his best-selling book, The Things They Carried, Tim O'Brien chronicles the turbulent experiences in the jungles of Vietnam. He was dodging death, and he was juggling the horrors of war, and he observes the inability of his fellow soldiers to talk about death. Despite being surrounded by it, they avoided it. And listen carefully to what he writes. He says, they used a hard vocabulary to contain the terrible softness. Greased, they'd say, oft, lit up, zapped while zipping. It wasn't cruelty, just stage presence. They were actors. When someone died, it wasn't quite dying, because in a curious way, it seemed scripted. And because they called it by other names, as if to insist and destroy the reality of death itself. And this is interesting, as O'Brien observes his fellows unable to speak about death, he says they were avoiding the topic and they had euphemisms that they used so that they could somehow eradicate it in their minds. That death was so awful and such a prevalent part of their daily reality. And O'Brien's insights are extremely helpful. And it's not just helpful in thinking about a historical period, a particularly difficult one in American history, in the Vietnam War. But it's helpful because it continues to strike close to home for us. That we too have our euphemisms. That we have subjects that we desire to avoid. And we don't have to go to the jungles of Southeast Asia to find them. But death itself for us continues to be a topic that we like to avoid and skirt around, something that we don't like to discuss. We want to ignore death, and our attempts to do so are vibrant, even though famously unsuccessful. Human transience is a persistent reality. It is part of our lives day to day, week to week, and year over year, and we can't escape it. And it's directly into this crisis of human mortality, the trial of the brevity of life, that Psalm 90 speaks. In verses 3 through 6, we find that this trial is simply foregrounded for us, where our lives are compared to grass that is strong and vibrant in the morning with the dew, but yet by the afternoon in the heat of the day, the grass withers. And this is the condition of the human life. And Psalm 90 even says if we're granted 70 or even 80 years, a long life in the terms of the period when this was written, that even then it's fleeting, it's transient, it's brief. But this brevity is then contrasted with the life of God. We find this in verses 1 and 2, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, 
you are God. That God's life is one that does not change. That God's life is one that endures. That he is unswerving in his character and his covenant. That he's unchanging in his person and also in his promises. That he's constant in his being and his actions. Yes, while we change and we suffer great changes and we're mortal and we die, he does not suffer any of those things. And so in the midst of our mortality, in the midst of human change, in the midst of human frailty, we're confronted by an eternal God who is a rock, who is a refuge, a dwelling place for us. And he's the same yesterday, he's the same today, and he will be the same forever. And as our refuge, he extends certain resources to us in the midst of this crisis that confronts us so that our mortality does not overtake us, so it doesn't drag us down and lead us into cynicism and despair. And so the question for us this morning is, what do we need from him as our refuge? What do we need from this rock and what can he extend to us in the middle of the crisis of our mortality? And at the close of Psalm 90, you'll note in verses 12 through 17, there are four main petitions that the psalmist makes. And this reveals what we need from God and what God in his grace gives to us. And so let's look at the close of the psalm in verses 12 through 17 and consider these four things about how God ministers to us in the midst of mortality. First, in verse 12, we see that we need instruction. The psalmist writes, So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. And the psalmist is explaining here is that when we learn to number our days, we actually gain a certain kind of wisdom, and we need to call out to God in order to instruct us. And the psalm requests that God instruct us specifically about life's brevity. That rather than it being a subject that we ignore and something that we close the door on and press away from ourselves, that we entertain ourselves to death and we act like it doesn't exist, rather we ask God to give us wisdom. And we ask God for wisdom about how we perceive and how we understand the crisis of mortality. Because this is what God's wisdom does. It enables us to interpret it. It enables us to relate to death in the proper way. Because you see, there are many different philosophies and many different religions and many different approaches to the problem of death that are available. I was once watching an interview of Woody Allen on 60 Minutes. And he was speaking about his death. And he said, yes, well, on my tombstone... I think what I'm going to have engraved there is my mother said this was always going to happen. And he was just making fun of death. He was asked about his particular religious views, and he said he had none, but that the bomb that he could offer in life and what he'd given his career to was laughter. You could look at ancient Greece where we have burial inscriptions these run parallel to the time of the New Testament church. And one common one that was found for those who were buried said something like this. I was not, I was, I am not. That these were the last words said. It's rather bleak. 
There are different approaches to death. There's different ways of looking at it. We can look at it cynically and say it's just the end. We can laugh about it, but really inside be despairing and not have any type of hope. But what God offers to us as an eternal dwelling place is wisdom that allows us to interpret death theologically. And this is where Psalm 90 takes us. You'll note that we read from Genesis 3, and we read from Genesis 3 because it's echoed here in verse 3 of Psalm 90. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. And then he presses further in verses 9 through 11, where the psalmist is explaining how we've arrived in this condition of death. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? And here is being offered the biblical account of why we find ourselves in death, that it is no accident, but rather it's the curse of God on human rebellion. That we decided to go our own way and each of us has followed in that course and in that path. And we've chosen to pursue our own direction, rebelling against God. And the price that we pay is the judgment of death. And all who have partaken of sin and find themselves living in the condition of sin, we need God's wisdom to understand the story from this perspective. Because it is then in understanding that death is the judgment of God against human sin, that we can find hope. Because what the Apostle Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 15, and you may find it helpful to turn there, is that death is the sowing that will lead to resurrection and life. In 1 Corinthians 15, in verse 35 and 36, Paul asks the question, How are the dead raised? What kind of body do they come You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And Paul is explaining here that death is something that the Christian takes up in faith. That we enter into this alley, a dark alley, and it can be overwhelming and it can seem to overcome us. But he's saying, no, into that dark alley we journey in faith and we trust that as something must be sown into the ground and die, and then life will come. Follow his argument further. Down in the chapter, in verses 42 and 43, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. And friends, when God teaches us to number our days... And he gives us his perspective on death. We understand that death is the judgment of sin. But then God has also done something to affect the death of death itself. That in us being sown into the ground, this is the first stage that we submit to in faith. And then that God will raise us up in the likeness of Jesus who conquered death itself. And this is what we need from God. We need this instruction that he has brought about the death of death in the resurrection of Jesus. And he extends that personally and powerfully to you and says it's yours when you look to Jesus in faith. The second thing that we need from God, we also need hope. 
If you follow with me in verse 13, there's a petition here. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Now, this is interesting because it's asking God to come and write things. It's a future-oriented prayer asking for God to return and make things right in the world. This, too, is informed by Genesis 3 and seeing all the calamity that comes into the world because of human rebellion. Because it's not just that our relationship with God was fractured and broken on that day. But the entire creation, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, was subjected to futility. There is decay. There is sin impacting every portion of human life. No one can be untouched by it. And the psalmist here is asking for God to return, for God to fix this situation, to bring grace that can only heal the creation that's been so corrupted and polluted by sin. And friends, it's important for us to recognize something about ourselves, because all of us are cultural creatures, and none of us can avoid that. We live in a unique and peculiar culture within the history of the world. We have food readily available, drive through delivery, pickup. You can find Mediterranean restaurants and Italian restaurants where you can have instantly what you want. You can find every variety of restaurant. You have more at your fingertips than anyone in the history of the world, and it's on demand. You have television shows on demand that you can purchase and buy. And when your internet runs slow, you become frustrated like me. You can go to Amazon and you can order something. And then because we live in the distribution area, it will be at your doorstep perhaps even that afternoon. And when we're asked to wait for a day, we normally have sent an email and asked where our package is. We have the internet. We have smartphones. We have instant access to the world. It's unprecedented. And what's important for us to consider is the impact of all of this instant society and what it does to us as people. There's nothing wrong particularly with all of that power and technology when we harness it for good, but it's important to be wise about how can it shape you and how can it form you. Now, I'll just suggest, I think rather simply, that one of the things that is prone to apathy when we live in that instant society one of the things prone to apathy is hope. We don't think a great deal about the future because we have everything at our fingertips in the present. And we have the ability to focus on the present and harness its resources and to use it. And so we become very present tense. And this makes us stand apart sometimes in the world from other Christian communities because we're so focused on the present and they are so focused upon the future. And they perhaps see something that we don't. And friends, one of the resources that the God who is our dwelling place, this eternal refuge, this safe place and home for us that he offers us in the middle of our mortality is this strong hope, a promise that it, he has made out of his perfect and pure character and that he has sworn in his covenant that he will keep that our Lord Jesus will return and he will right the wrongs of creation, that he'll cleanse it of its impurities, that he'll cleanse our hearts, that our bodies will be raised new, that the creation will be set free from its corruption. 
We're told in the Psalms that the creation itself will dance, the trees will clap their hands, this wonderful metaphor about all things being reconciled and reunited, heaven and earth becoming one. And in the middle of your mortality and in the middle of mine, this is the kind of hope that must animate us. We need a very lively and active hope, a future orientation to the great consummation of all things and what God intends to do through Jesus. We need this hope. Third thing that we need is found in verses 14 through 16 is that we need daily renewal. If you follow with me there in verse 14, the request is satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. And friends, this is the simple request of the one who lives in the condition of mortality, is that God satisfy us each day with his steadfast love. It's very similar to the prayer of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 3, where he's asking that the church would know the unsurpassable knowledge of the love of God revealed in Jesus, and that day by day we would know the mercies of God, that we would know his grace and his love that goes beyond all comprehension and all understanding, and that God satisfy, that God satiate us each day in the knowledge of that love, which of course requires the knowledge and understanding of our brokenness, to freely confess that, to know that God works past this in the death of Jesus, that he cancels out the weight of our sin. And it is to be renewed in that knowledge day by day by day. And this places the seal of affirmation, the seal of God's love upon our heart, that we know that we're not separated from him. We need that renewal. Roughly a decade ago, I had a conversation with an older senior minister who had become a friend and was a mentor. And he had mentioned to me that upon his retirement, he was interested in me serving inside of his church. And so that became of interest. It was in that little garden of Eden called North Carolina, which is where I'm from. And he captivated me with the idea and allured me to it. About a year later, he retired from his post, and so I was expecting that the search committee would have my phone number and my email address, and I'd be receiving a call from them. Weeks went by, and one friend received a call, and I didn't. And then a minister was hired, and I was left standing there, scratching my head. I had a good job. I was happy with that, but what exactly had happened? I was smarting, feeling some lack of affirmation from this friend, one who'd said that I would be a good fit and he wanted to see me in it. And then there was nothing but silence. And so I called one of my most trusted mentors who's been with me for many years now. And I was telling him about the situation. I said, Tim, I'm just profoundly hurt. He said, well, Chuck, it sounds like, you know, there is a lack of affirmation that you're feeling from this friend, that he didn't single you out, that he didn't put you in the lineup, and then you didn't obtain the job. He said, but I think there's something deeper going on in you. 
And whenever Tim tells me that, I know that I'm about to go to the woodshed. And he then told me, he said, my sense is in you that you're looking to your career to provide something that you can only find in the love of God. And that you're seeking to find something that God can only impress upon you by convincing you that you're his son, that he's adopted you, that he's brought you into his family, and that you're looking outside for that, that you're asking other things to satisfy you, and you're never going to find it. And friends, that's what we're prone to do. In the middle of all of our mortality and the changing world that we live in and all the pains that we suffer and the burdens that we bear, that we're very prone to look all around in the world scratching about for meaning and something to give us identity and something to give us affirmation. And what the love of God that's been given to us in Jesus announces is that it is here. And so we are to cry out to him, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. That's what God extends to us. We need that renewal. If we don't find that renewal, we will be running about looking for it in other places, whether it's a person and a relationship or a career or some type of escape, or some type of possession, and it will never fulfill what you're looking for it to do. In the middle of this mortal life, we need this daily renewal from God. Now, the final piece, what we find in verse 17, is that we need God's favor. In the midst of all this mortality where there's change, and change is constant, there's decay, there's pollution, and there's death, we need the favor of God. Look at the final request of the psalm. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Whenever we find two lines repeated, it means that emphasis is being brought to it in the poetry of the Bible. And you see what the request is. God establish the work of our hands. And this is where the Bible is very realistic about the human condition. In our mortality, we also heard in Genesis 3 that now the work of our hands has been cursed. It is by the sweat of your brow, God says, that you'll bring forth the thorns and the thistles of the creation. You will also scratch out a living, but the creation itself is now cursed, and you will not find it as productive as it was intended to be. And friends, that's the condition in which all of us now live. We live in that sin-cursed, frustrating world where we understand what Solomon wrote about vanity of vanity, meaningless. That oftentimes our lives and the work, what we give ourselves to, whether that is raising children or whether it is our job or whether it is our marriages or whether it's constructing a household, that we find vanity and meaninglessness in it, that it can oftentimes feel futile and it's deeply frustrating. And there's perhaps nothing that makes people despair of life more than the raw frustration of attempting to serve God and then being disappointed in life. John Steinbeck, in his book, East of Eden, even though not a Christian himself, Steinbeck captures many different Christian themes in the novel, and I commend it uh, to all of you to read. The main character is a man named Adam Trask. 
He's fabulously wealthy and buys large tracts of land in the Salinas Valley in California. He had expansive dreams for the property, what he was going to turn it into, how he was going to cultivate it. He was living there with his wife and his two sons. His wife leaves them, actually shot him, and then he was crushed. He stopped cultivating the land. He despaired of life itself, thought of ending his own life, and then he has an encounter. It's one of the most profound passages in literature I've ever read. A man named Samuel comes to him. Listen to the entire passage. Samuel said, I wonder, you do not feel ashamed at leaving that land fallow. I had no reason to plant it, Adam said. Sam then asked, do you take pride in your hurt? Does it make you seem large and tragic? And then Adam answers, I don't know. Adam then retorts with his own questions of Sam. He says, why do you come to lecture me? I'm glad you've come, but why do you dig into me? And then Sam answers, to see whether I can raise a little anger in you. There's all that fallow land, and here beside me is all that fallow man. It seems a waste. Is it a good feeling to let your life lie fallow? Adam then says, what else could I do? And Sam says, you could try again. And Adam responds finally by saying, I'm afraid to, Sam. I'd rather just go about it this way. And it is the fear. It is the disappointment. No mistake that the book is titled East of Eden. Because this is what happens to us in a broken world. When we meet disappointment, there's cynicism, there's despair. And it leads to a certain type of forfeit. But what God is proclaiming in the psalm is that despite the sin-cursed world in which we live in, as we approach him in faith and as we serve him, that our lives are not meaningless. It's what the Apostle Paul says also in 1 Corinthians 15, that we labor not in vain that our lives can be suffused with meaning, despite all the vanity, despite the depravity, despite the brokenness of the world. It can be suffused with meaning, and God will and can establish the work of our hands, that we're not Sisyphus, that we don't labor in a meaningless way. Friends, that is the last resource that God provides to us that our lives are filled and suffused with meaning. In the middle of all of our mortality and the ways that we desire to dodge it, and the ways that we desire to not think about it, God invites us to meditate richly upon it so that we can then turn to him and find all of his gracious resources aimed at us, that we would receive his wisdom about how to interpret it and understand it, knowing that he's conquered it. That we would have hope, knowing that God one day will make all things right and new. That we would be satisfied with his love day by day and not sink our meaning anywhere else. And that we would know that God will establish the work of our hands. That we don't labor in vain. That despite all of the relativity of our lives, despite the impermanence, God is the one who's able to take that work and establish it. 
Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. But we build in him. And friends, these are our great hopes. This is what our God, our dwelling place, from generation to generation, gives to us. And so let's look to him for it. Let's pray. Father, as we're reminded this morning that from dust we are and to dust we shall return, we are reminded of these truths but not in despair because we know the great hope of your steadfast love. We know your great plans for the consummation of the age and making all things right. We know your wisdom that secures us and we know that you are the one who allow us to labor and not in vain. And so strengthen us, God, to believe and to trust in you, our dwelling place, from generation to generation. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You stand and sing with us. Thy mercy, my God, is the theme of my song.